Okay, Kevin, I was at the flood. So I, I hate to tell people I'm old enough that I remember the flood, but it's true. You know, this week when I began looking towards Sunday and looked at the text that was assigned in my reading that uh, I was to preach today, my first reaction was, didn't I just do that text? And so I got my records out and started going back through and discovered to my surprise that it had been years and years since I had preached this text. And then it dawned on me, it wasn't the text that was so familiar, it was the subject matter of the text. That what this text deals with is mentioned so many times in Scripture. And so I thought, well, if the Holy Spirit saw fit to include this material in its various forms so many times, then perhaps we should hear it again. So let's be standing as we hear this, the Word of God, as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Paul is writing. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers... Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, well, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, I love this Sunday. Because I have until 11.45 that you've given me to deliver this message. And according to the clock back there, it is now 10.30. (laughs) So settle in. (laughs) All of us have heard the jokes, uh, I call them light bulb jokes. How many blanks does it take to change a light bulb? Some of them are really funny. Some are a little cruel. Uh, Try to skip over those. Uh, One that has always stayed with me, and I don't know why, out of all the ones I've heard, this one sort of sticks with me, but how many blues singers, how many blues singers does it take to change a light bulb? It takes five. One to change the bulb and the other four to sing sad songs about the poor old tired light bulb. 
Y'all don't think that's near as funny as I do. I love that. Thank you, Larissa. I appreciate it. Well, we have a riddle today. How many people does it take to form a group of diverse people of different backgrounds, different ages, different ideas, different opinions, into a close-knit community, sharing the same mind and the same purpose? Or to say it in other words, how many people does it take to change a bunch of people into a church? Now, this is a valid question because those of us in leadership roles within the church deal with this almost on a daily basis. How do we get this many people to have the same mind, the same purpose, and the same heart? This is a question that Paul is posing in his text, and he has an answer. Paul says, I know how many people it takes to turn a whole bunch of folks into a church. You know, you don't have to be around church very long before you become aware that there's a lot of opinions in church. I mean, we have opinions. You get this many people together. We have trouble deciding what temperature this room ought to be. We have trouble deciding whether or not we want to have coffee in the foyer, or whether we should have two services or one service, what kind of songs we should sing, how those of us who get up on the stage ought to be dressed, how many people should be leading our singing, how do we do the invitation song, things like this, not to mention when we get into the things such as the theology of the atonement or the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, again, realizing that we all have these different opinions and different ideas, how many people does it take to change all these folks into one church? There's an old story about a woman that got so frustrated with church because they were doing all these things she didn't like, that she started her own church. And she had a group of folks, and they started meeting together, but over time, she began to have to whittle out some of those folks because they weren't agreeing with what she thought ought to be done. And so finally, a friend of hers went to visit with her and was talking to her and says, you know, I hear that you sort of got your own church that meets together. And she said, yeah, that's right. She said, well, I've heard that it's just gotten down to you and your husband, Harry. And you think that only you and your husband, Harry, are doing things right. To which the woman replied, well, you know, I'm beginning to wonder about Harry. <laughs> well, we stop and think about it. Can we find really one other person that shares every opinion and idea and thought that we share. The good news is, out of this text, that this is not a new problem. That even in Paul's time, even in the first century, that first century church, which our, our restoration tradition holds up as an ideal, 
And we want to copy it and to be as much like those people as we can be. We realize that they struggle too with this very issue. So that's good news to know that maybe we're not that strange in that we have different ideas from some other people and so forth. But even better news is that Paul knew the answer to the riddle. That there really is an answer to the question, how many people does it take to change a whole bunch of folks into a church? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, read verse 10 again. It goes this way, Paul says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Now That's a good translation, but really that word is even stronger than that. We can translate it also, and your Bible may have it translated this way. Now I beg you, brothers and sisters, and I beg you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you something. Paul did not throw around the name of Jesus lightly. And if he invoked the name of his Lord Jesus Christ, it was over a matter that he was very, very passionate about. So what is it that he's begging them? What is it that he's calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus in order to help in this situation? I beg you that all of you be in agreement, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. Now why is he talking to the Corinthian church this way, which was, by the way, a first century church? Why is he talking to them this way? Well, he goes on to talk about how there are groups forming, and they're kind of forming around some personalities that have been very influential in that church. You've got a group of people that really like Paul. You've got a group of people that like Apollos, who was a wonderful, eloquent preacher. You've got a group of people that kind of like Peter and what he thinks and how he does things. And then you've got this group that say they just like Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, most uh, scholars that look at this text say that this was the group that was kind of a little above everybody else. Well, you guys, you know, you think this and this and this. We think like Christ. Well, the point is, though, that these people are being formed around different interest groups and probably around the opinions that those guys had. You know, if we read our Bibles all the way through, we find out that Paul and Apollos did not agree on everything. We also learned that Paul and Peter had some disagreements. In fact, we have some times where, like in the book of Acts, where Apollos had been in Ephesus, and he was out preaching and teaching and baptizing people, and he was doing it in the wrong way. He was baptizing people not in the name of Jesus Christ, and he wasn't even telling them about the Holy Spirit. That's pretty big stuff. Priscilla and Aquila got a hold of him. <laughs> and they took him and they taught him the way of the Lord more perfectly, as the old King James Bible says. But some things had already been done. The seeds had been sown. And Paul came along and had to clean up Apollos' mess. What was his attitude about Apollos after that? Or what about when Paul and Peter were both in Antioch? 
And Peter began treating Gentile Christians like second-class citizens. He wouldn't sit down at a table and eat where Gentiles were eating. This is Peter. Peter, the one who had seen the vision of the animals, who had first preached the gospel to Gentiles, first baptized the Gentile, Cornelius. And yet for some reason, because he didn't want to offend, I can tell you, the reason was he, he, there were other people that thought that wasn't good and he didn't want to offend them. And here we go with all these things again. And Paul called him out and said, I opposed him face to face and said, Peter, you're wrong. So what was the attitude that Peter and Paul had toward each other after that? Have you ever had a public showdown with someone where it's witnesses and you argued something out? And can you get along after that? Peter and Paul did. Paul and Apollos did. Because they knew that there was something else that bound them together. Something that was stronger than mistakes they had made. Something that was stronger than themselves. Something that could make people who had different ideas and different opinions, and had even had some arguments, could bring them together into a church. Let's look at verse 13. Because as Paul begins to answer this problem, he does it by posing some riddles of his own. Listen to these questions. He says... Has Christ been divided? I want to ask you something. Was Paul crucified for you? Also answer this question. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? You see where he's going, don't you? How many people does it take to make a bunch of folks into a church? Paul's answer is one. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his cross. Paul goes on to say that when we don't get along and when we don't act together with the same mind, the same heart, and the same spirit, we are basically emptying the cross of its power. Because the power of the cross, according to Paul, is to bring us to God and to bring us together as his children. That's why the cross was there. Remember back when Satan tried to get Jesus to do things in an easier way? And Jesus stayed on the route to the cross? Remember whenever Jesus, the night before he died, fell on his knees and begged God, isn't there some other way to do this? And the obvious answer was no, because only the cross of Christ has the power to make right between us and God. Only the cross of Christ can overcome our own differences and bind us together as the people of God. Paul goes on to say, For the message about the cross is just foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those of us who have been to the cross, those of us who have been baptized into the name of Jesus. We have experienced that power. That power has become the defining moment of our lives. That power has become the time and the one event in all of history that tells us who we are, what we are. It defines 
who we embrace, it makes us one with God and one with each other. It's the power of the cross that has that power. The cross is powerful enough to take people who are so different, so different that you might think it's wrong to have coffee in the foyer, and you might think we got to have coffee. I want to tell you something. The cross of Christ is strong enough to keep you guys together. (laughs) The cross of Christ is strong enough to make people who grew up in privileged homes where you always had enough to eat, you always had the right clothes to wear, you always had everything that your friends had. It's powerful enough to bind your heart and your soul to those who grew up in houses that were cold, who didn't always have something in the refrigerator, and who wore shoes that were handed down from someone else. Now, in some worlds, those two people may not have much to do with each other. But in our world, in the cross world, we're together. Some of us live healthy lifestyles. We worry when we eat too many snickerdoodles. That's a confession. I ate four last night. (laughs) Others of us, for reasons you can't even tell anymore, you don't know, made decisions that have brought your body into risk and peril. And you struggle with addictions. You struggle with things that you know are not healthy in your life. Hopefully you're succeeding in putting those away. And you know, sometimes it would be hard for some folks to relate to these folks. But the cross of Christ breaks those barriers down. How many people does it take to change a bunch of folks into a church? Just one, provided that each one of us has been to the cross. Let's stand and sing.